Good evening. I know I'm a guest here, but uh, I think we should do that again and the adults do the, do the parts. Adam's not listening, so. <laughs> well, I could say we could just about leave after, after the music because I think Adam picked out some good songs and has pretty much preached the message through music this morning. Um, or this afternoon, whatever time of day it is. It's still bright outside, so it feels like morning. But I'm glad to be here. I know I've known many of you for, for some 20 on years or, or more, and, and, and others not so long, but still very familiar. And, and thankful to be with you all this evening. Thankful for your pastors and elders here. I've known all of them for a good while and love them and their families. And I'm thankful for this church and y'all being here this evening. So as we consider Psalm 77, we'll, we'll get into that. Um, um, questions come to mind when you think about this psalm. What do you do when the experiences of life bring you to doubt or question God, when you question His goodness, His faithfulness, or His love? What do you do when you're overwhelmed with your feelings and thoughts that you're tempted to despair? Or how do you deal with the troubles you face that seem to plunge you, plunge you into the dark valleys of life? Um, secular psychology, when we hear kind of that generalized, they're quick to diagnose it and to medicate it. Secular culture either says drown it with your desires, just distract yourself to death, or it tells you to embrace your feelings and your own thoughts, making them the source of absolute truth, no matter what anybody else has to say. Other religions say make amends for whatever pain and suffering you're going through, work to please the gods to earn their favor, ignore it or point you inward, believing that you have the power in and of yourself to overcome. But unfortunately, some areas of Christianity have taken cues from these other sources when dealing with troubles in life. Christians dealing with doubt, despair, or questions are often treated as inferior or weak believers. Doubts and questions from life's trials are suppressed, and Christianity is often pictured as something that will make your life perfect. Come to Jesus and everything will be all right. This leads to a culture within churches that ignores the dark valleys and solely aims at the mountaintop experiences, leaving many Christians hurting and confused. Some feel as though they must put on a happy face to mask the pain and sorrow that they're truly experiencing, only to leave them to walk away from the church, thinking that their questions, their despair, and ever the things that they're dealing with are not valid. But this is not the norm that we see in God's Word. This is not what we see from Scripture. This is not what we see um, God directing us accordingly. The Bible presents us with a real picture of life in a world marred by sin, living in bodies that are broken by sin amongst other sinners. This is one of the great apologetics of Christianity, that it actually makes sense of the life that we live, of real life, day-to-day things that we deal with. Scripture acknowledges the mountaintop experiences that we all want, but it also acknowledges the dark valleys of despair as well. And there's no better place in this than to see it in the Psalms. Um, In the formal sense, the Psalms have been the prayer and praise book of the people of God from ancient Israel to the church today, but that's not all that it is. The Psalms are perpetually relevant to God's people. David Pallison writes about the Psalms. He says, The Psalms are designed to be exactly what we need in the moment. Not only that, but the Psalms connect you to the sorrows and joys of the saints in history, Christ's own sufferings, and give us a way to approach the Father when we don't have the energy or the words to say. The Psalms are for you for today, Pallison writes. 
The Psalms are also comforting because they're reminders that we're not alone. As we read them, we feel the same things that they're feeling. We've had the same cries that they're crying out. So it connects to us, reminding us that there's no temptation that's not common to man. That there's nothing new here that we're experiencing and that the breath of life experiences and emotions are shared amongst believers from all times. John Calvin, in the introduction of his commentary on the Psalms, describes the Psalms this way. He says, they're an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. So everything you've dealt with, everything you're dealing with, everything you will deal with, we find in the Psalms. Men and women wrestling in faith, but trying to understand life before God in relationship to God. And it's because of these reasons and more that we turn to this psalm tonight to answer the questions that we, in summary, began with. What do we do when the troubles of life seem to overwhelm us? Here in Psalm 77 and resounding throughout all of Scripture, we find that in the day of your trouble, look to the Lord, for He alone is our hope and comfort. So how do we look to the Lord in the midst of trouble? How do we look to Him in the midst where everything else around us is pressing us to despair? So let's consider this psalm tonight. We'll open it up looking at the four stanzas there broken by the the designation there, Selah, used to incite a pause or a time of reflection. We'll follow those four, uh, four stanzas that will show how this psalm leads us from the dark valleys of the despair to leaning into the comfort of gazing upon our great Lord. So first, the first stanza we see here in verses one through three, we see Asaph's trouble. So Psalm 77 verses 1 through 3 says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. So to dig a little more into this psalm before we, before we go verse by verse, we need to know a little bit more about Asaph. And he'll help us, helping know him will help us to understand this psalm. Asaph, coming from the tribe of Levi, was appointed as the choir master or the congregational singer. He was the Adam of Israel of of that day. Um, Asaph is accredited to to writing 12 songs, uh, Psalm 73 through 84. And most commentators agree either it was him, his sons, or descendants of Asaph that wrote those 12 psalms. Um, James Montgomery Boyce said of Asaph, the one thing you have to say about Asaph, if you read those Psalms, he tells it like like it is. He's respectful, but if he's unhappy or puzzled about what God is doing or not doing in the lives of God's people, he says so. And if you read throughout those Psalms, you'll see it. He lays out his emotions very plainly. Any questions, any doubts he may have, he lays them out there for us to see and wrestle with them before God. Several of Asaph's Psalms are referred to as Psalms of Lament which is a record of the psalmist's cry um, when, when he's in great distress and he has nowhere to turn but to God. And if you haven't picked up on it and hearing Psalm 77 read already, uh, you probably picked up that this is a psalm of lament. So here's where we find Asaph. He's greatly distressed and in need. So what is his trouble? We see he's in trouble. He's day, facing a day of trouble. So what is it? Verse 1 serves as an introduction to really everything else going on. Really, verses 1 through 3 introduce all that he's going to wrestle through in this whole psalm here. 
So here he begins by commending prayer to us. Asaph's in trouble. He's dealing with things. He's in despair. And he doesn't just stop there. He cries aloud to the Lord. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. So he didn't, Spurgeon said of this, Asaph did not run to man but to the Lord, and to him he went, not with studied, stately, stilted words, but with a cry, the natural, unaffected, unfeigned expression of pain. He cried aloud to God, aloud to God, he says, is what he did here. But not only does he commend prayer to us, just as this some ritualistic exercise that he's just going to do, and if I say these words, then I'm going to feel better. No, he gives us a reason why he prays and a great hope that there is in prayer. He says in verse 1, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. So he's not just saying these magic words that will make him feel better and all his trouble goes away. No, he's speaking to the sovereign Lord of all things who not just has a deaf ear to him and you have to say the right things to get in. No, he cries aloud to the Lord and he hears him. It's a wondrous grace of God, not only that we may, as his children, come before his throne boldly because of what Christ has done, even crying out here like Asaph, but he's attentive to our prayers. He's attentive to Asaph's prayers. He's attentive to our prayers. Our God hears our prayers. What a great encouragement to pray. What, what, what great privilege prayer is. What great hope it gives us, no matter what we're going through, that we can take it to the Lord in prayer and He hears us. Sovereign God hears you. Your, lovely, your loving Heavenly Father is attentive to you at all times. But He goes on. What's the substance of His prayer? Verse 2 says, In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. Something's happened in Asaph's life that has him troubled. We don't know whether it's something personal or if it's something national. We don't know what it is. The phrase day of trouble is general enough to span a short period of time or a long period of time. Anything that could trouble someone externally or internally could be included here. It could be sickness or the consequences of sin. It could be personal or national. We're not sure. But he goes on intensifying the explanation, saying that this is not merely a bad morning or a bad afternoon or or just a a bad night after eating something that upset his stomach. He, he, He goes on to say, that he found no resolution because in the night his hand is stretched out without wearying. He's crying out to the Lord. He's reaching out for help. He wants help, but he's not finding any in the way that he's going about it. So even this may indicate some physical ailment or a result of the trouble that he's dealing with. He's going through something, and now because of that, he's, he can't sleep. He can't rest. He's reaching out for God, trying to figure these things out. And we even see the quietness of night and the opportunity of rest or no consolation to him. But going further, this trouble is so bothersome to him and there's something that he can't brush off as he says his soul refuses to be comforted. He could not rest until he found understanding or a solution to the trouble that he faced. But notice what he did not do. Unable to find comfort, Asaph didn't run to the things of this world which promise peace and comfort but are only illusions of such mere distractions from the hard issues of life. That would have been easy for him to do. I guess it would have been easy for him to turn on a Netflix and just start streaming something because they didn't have that then, obviously. But any version of that day, hey, let's go turn over to just some something. Let me go out and, and, and hang with friends and just ignore the hard realities of life and, and not deal with them and not be refreshed by the promises that God has for me. He didn't do that. He continues. He goes on digging into um, the trouble that he's facing. 
So he continues revealing the depth of his trouble that even his remembrance of God causes him to ache and be overwhelmed. He says, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. And this may be something strange to hear from a believer. When I think about God, I moan. And when I meditate on His Word, on Him, my spirit faints. But Asaph's trouble is so consuming that when he thinks of God's goodness, it seems distant. Thoughts of God's holiness seem burdensome. Thoughts remembering God's might would bring fear to him. This day of trouble, this life circumstance that Asaph is dealing with, has him crying out, troubled, inconsolable, and overwhelmed. And this is Asaph's trouble, yet it addresses the troubles in our life as well. We don't say, well, that, that's what he was dealing with. That's you know, peculiar to him. So that, that's not really applying to he. The general nature of his trouble applies to all the things that we face in our life. There's not a person in this room that has not or will not face trouble in this life. It's what the Word of God promises to us, that we live in a world broken by sin and bodies broken by sin amongst other sinners. We're going to face trouble in this world. Everything is not as it should be. Not yet. Not till Christ returns. But God tells us here that we will face trouble and trials. And there's many sources of trouble. And it, because of what Asaph's is saying, the general nature of it includes everything. It could be physical troubles, illness, you know, chronic or, or injury pain. And, and we could talk you know, any physical trouble, any life situations, change or loss of a job, having children. That's a good thing, but that causes stress in life. That can cause trouble, um, psychological troubles, mental troubles, you know, chemical imbalances, spiritual troubles, sin or neglect of God's word and God's people, emotional troubles, relational troubles, societal troubles, and on and on we could go. We could make a long list tonight just going around the room and saying, hey, what kind of trouble have you faced? And that's what Asaph, what this psalm can be applied to, that kind of trouble. We all face days of trouble. And it may not just be a day, it may not be just a month, a week, year or years, we all will face those. And each one has the potential to bring us through those dark valleys like Asaph is dealing with. David Murray in his book, Christians Get Depressed Too, writes concerning um, five areas of our lives. He says, our life situation, our thoughts, our feelings, our bodies, and our behavior. And he goes on to say about those five, all five of these are interrelated. We cannot separate our thoughts from our feelings or our feelings from our behavior. What we think affects how we feel, and what we think and feel affects our, our physical health. Our thoughts, feelings, and physical health affect what we do. And that's the reality that we live in. We're interrelated. Everything is connected together. We can't say, well, I'm dealing with sin over here. That's not going to affect my health. Or I'm, not gonna, I'm dealing with you know, a lot of physical issues right now. That's not going to affect my spiritual life or my relational life. All those things are interconnected, and we feel that day to day. And as we dig into these things, we can deal with them better in light of God's Word and, and the, the, the way that He has given us answers to deal with them. And we'll see that as we go along. We are sinners living in a sin-cursed world among other sinners. We know that. Days of trouble have come and are coming. So how will you face them? How will you look to the Lord when He appears hidden by your trials? Whatever your trouble is, the psalm is for you. It is about you. It's that you, it's that you may know how to walk faithfully through the trouble and find hope and comfort in the Lord. So that's Asaph's trouble. He's dealing with something. We're all dealing with something. How do we deal with it faithfully before the Lord? Secondly, the next stanza we see here, verses 4 through 9, we see Asaph's folly. 
So he's crying out to the Lord. He's going in the right direction. But we see a break there that he, as, even though he's crying out to the Lord, he's beginning to think through or process things wrongly. And he, he does this in, in follies. So verses 4 through 9 we see, You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love ceased forever? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Selah. So here we see Asaph's folly. We, here we see him attempting to think through and to process and interpret his trouble on his own and make sense of it on his own. The mood only darkens as he continues, for we see the impact of his trouble. He's unable to sleep. He's unable to speak. He's unable to rest. And so he turns to his past for comfort. He looks back on what we would say would be better days in his own life. So with nostalgia, he looks back at his, in his own life or maybe the nation itself and, and wants to think about better days when everything was okay, when there was no trouble, or at least in his mind, there was no trouble. But he cannot linger there because it's stark contrast with the present. That doesn't bring him peace. That doesn't bring him comfort because he knows maybe those were better days, but I'm not experiencing that now. While those days were full and blessed, now is the day of trouble, seemingly erasing those good memories that he had. Verses 4 through 6 says, You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So this is where we see that turn. It is in Asaph's inward focus that we find his folly. And we see that in his use of the personal pronouns here. Between verses 1 through 6, Asaph refers to himself, sorry, refers to himself 20 times and God only six times. So over and over he's saying, my, you know, me, I, me, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to do this, I'm meditating, I'm, you know, I cry aloud, I seek the Lord, my soul, my hand, um, and on and on and on. We see 20 times he's referring to himself and what he's doing to try to understand his trouble rather than looking to God. Asaph's folly is that he was focused on himself, on his trouble, his feelings, and his own ability to understand and to solve his trouble. He allowed his circumstances, he allowed the trouble that he was going through to dictate truth rather than the God who is truth. And this became poisonous to Asaph. As his aching mind used his trouble as a lens or a framework to make conclusions about God, he begins to cry out and to question, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion so he's asking these questions out of trying to understand these things himself. If this is what it used to be like when everything was okay and now everything's not okay, what does that mean about God? What does that mean about my relationship with God? And that's how he's processing it. James Montgomery Boyce helps us here in thinking about these questions. He says even to ask these questions or to an is to answer them. The answer is, of course not. God does not change. God does not break His promises. His mercies are new every morning. Therefore, if the psalmist does not believe that God is favorable, it must be because he is seeing things incorrectly. He is the wrong, one that is wrong, not God. And how wrong he was. I mean, think back to Exodus. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. How does God reveal Himself? 
unchangeably reveal Himself. He says to Moses, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. So thinking on Asaph's questions, how can the Lord who is long-suffering spurn forever? How can the God who is good be favorable no more? How would Yahweh who is merciful cease to show mercy? How would the promises of the Lord who is faithful come to fail? How can he who is gracious forget to be gracious? And how might our God who forgives sin continue in anger toward his own? He cannot, he will not forevermore. No matter what we feel, no matter what we're going through, he remains the same. So, but lest we scoff too quickly at Asaph's folly, thinking that was, that was foolish, Asaph. Why did you think that way? Why did you ask those questions? It's also our folly as well sometimes. When greatly troubled, overwhelmed by life's circumstances, going into those dark valleys and in despair, we act or react in similar ways. We become nostalgic and we want to look back for comfort and say, oh, I remember when things were okay. If, it, if it only it was like that now. And in that, we question the goodness and wisdom of God. We look to our experiences, the troubles we face, as a source of truth rather than the Word of God. And we too, in folly, ask similar questions and make similar statements that Asap did in trying to think about our circumstances this way. We cry out, is God mad at me? Have I lost favor with God? How could God allow this to happen to one of His own? Does He even care? Or we say things like, I don't feel like God loves me. Or God seems distant to me. And on and on we could go in relation to to trying to understand our circumstances through the lens of our feelings and our own thoughts rather than the truth of God's Word. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Spiritual Depression, he helps us by explaining the problem of this folly and giving us the answer to it as well. He says the main trouble, this is Lloyd-Jones, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this. That we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And that may sound strange, but just follow him for a moment. For a minute, take those thoughts that come to you in the moment when you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday or coming today or what's coming in the future. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? What business have you to be disquieted? He goes on to write, you must turn on yourself, abrade yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God instead of muttering in this this, this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who He is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged Himself to do. And then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself and defy other people, defy the devil and the whole world, and say with this man, hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. And there's Lloyd-Jones is thinking of Psalm 42 and 43 as David goes back and forth wrestling with despair and understanding he's got to speak to himself truth, hope in God, um, praise Him, His salvation 
and his God. And that's what we need to do. The problem is we're listening to our circumstances. We're listening to our own ability to to decipher those circumstances apart from God's word. Whereas like Lloyd-Jones and like scripture itself helps us with is to bring those truths of God's word to bear on what we're dealing with. But there's also encouragement found in Asaph's honesty. Even though we see folly here because he's trying to process this himself, we see encouragement because nowhere in Scripture do you see um, condemnation of the wrestlings of God people with trouble, with despair, or with doubt. You know, Asaph is wrestling here. We don't see you know, a break in the psalm and God come down condemning, be quiet, you shouldn't be asking those things. No, Asaph's allowed to wrestle with it. And we see many other psalms just like that. We see that throughout Scripture that God is not condemning us for having, you know, dealing with trouble, dealing with despair, dealing with doubt. That's comforting. It tells us that God's not threatened by our questions. He's not. He's not threatened by our confusion or our doubts concerning Him. Nor is it sin to ask or to question if we're truly seeking answers. There's a way to ask. Um, where you're truly seeking the truth from God and trying to understand your circumstances, your situation. There's also a way to ask where you're just asking in rebellion against Him. It's not sin to seek answers, questions from the Lord. It also reminds us that whatever leads us into the dark valleys, those troubles in this life, do not come apart from our perfectly wise, perfectly good, almighty, sovereign, heavenly Father. He does not and will not change, but our circumstances and our feelings do. Asaph's folly at this point, and ours, if we were to stop here, is our focus being fixed upon ourself, our feelings, and our own thinkings that we cannot see beyond our circumstances. While the fool says there is no God, we are no fool if in the day of trouble that we look to the Lord, which brings us to our next stanza. The third stanza we see here in in Psalm 77 is Asaph's change. Verses 10 through 15 says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With With your arm, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So in this third stanza, in these verses here, we see Asaph's change. So how does Asaph rise above, rise out of the dark valley, out of self-pity and self-assessment? What changes for him? Well, we know just by reading this psalm, we don't see a break again in the psalm where we see Asaph, well, thank you, Lord, all my trouble is gone. His circumstances haven't changed. The trouble has not left him. So what has changed for him? The psalm hinges here on verses 10 and 12. We see it folding over into a new direction. It says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So acknowledging his trouble, he is ready to press forward. So where does he turn? He turns to the years of the right hand of the Most High. He, he seeks to remember the deeds of the Lord, His wonders of old. He wants to ponder on His work and meditate on His mighty deeds. He wants to set His mind aright in who God is, what He's done, and what He's promised to do for Him and all of God's people. William Gurnall said of this, he said, The hound, when he has lost his scent, hunts backwards and so recovers it and pursues his game with louder cry than ever. 
Thus, Christian, when thy hope is at a loss and you question your salvation in another world, then look backward and see what God has already done for thee. And this is what Asaph did. In the day of his trouble, he looked to the Lord and began to preach truth to himself. This is who God is. This is what he's done for his people. And this is what he's promised to do. So where does Asaph go to see the years of the right hand of the Most High, to see the works of the Lord, to see his wonders of old? And I'm sure there would have been many examples that came to Asaph's mind, especially being a leader of the congregation of Israel, but one he lands on here. And we see him landing um, in the book of Exodus. You know, God's you know, redeeming of his people there in Exodus. So what did Asaph find? Verses 13 through 15, he sums it up, what he finds there in Exodus. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So even in the midst of his trouble, Asaph began to see God more clearly by looking back at his word. These verses echo Exodus 15, the song of Moses after God brought them through the Red Sea safely. In verses 11 through 13 of Exodus 15, Moses declared, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have, led your st- you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So with these passages in mind, Asaph, we see here really laying out three things that he preached to himself to help him rise out of the valley of despair. First, he sees that God is holy. Asaph said, your way, O God, is holy. Thinking back on the Exodus, what God did for his people there. God's holiness, when we think of it, in summary, speaks of his purity and his perfections, as well as his separateness and otherness than us from all creation. This can bring great fear as it did Asaph you know, moments ago when he's trying to think through his trouble on his own. He thinks of God's holiness. He knows that he's, God is separate other than him, and he fears that. But setting it right in context of the holy redeeming God, he now embraces that. Why? Because the God who is holy only does that which is holy. So just as Israel had to deal with being in Egypt for over 400 years and deal with leaving Egypt and be pursued by Pharaoh and dealing with all that trouble that we would all be troubled by even today, he understood that because God is holy and only does that which is holy and righteous and good, everything Israel was going through and everything that Asaph is going through here is coming from an holy God, is being allowed or brought by him who can do no wrong, who is unchangeably holy, who is a work in all things for the good of his people. That's not just true for Asaph, that's true for us as well. God has not changed. He's still holy, only does that which is holy. So anything that you're facing, any troubles you're facing in his life is being allowed or brought to you by a holy, good, righteous God. It doesn't change that it's trouble. It just changes how we understand it and if we can endure it resting in him. Secondly, Asaph saw a God who is great. He said, what God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. So looking back at what God had done in the Exodus, we know that His might was shown over and over again. Think of the plagues. Think of the parting of the Red Sea. What a great God who works wonders. 
No one can stay his hand and no purpose of his can be thwarted for he alone is great. And that's what he was showing in Exodus and that's what Asaph was beginning to understand in his own life. And here again, this, this is a great comfort to God's people because it means there's nothing or no one that can snatch us from his hand or could separate us from his love. The Lord's omnipotence is his people's security. And we rest in that. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing we can do. Nothing anyone else can do. Nothing, no one, period. And lastly, Asaph remembered that God is his redeemer. Verse 15 proclaims, You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. What was Asaph remembering? Again, he's remembering the Exodus. How God delivered his people Israel from bondage in Egypt by his might. God alone redeems. To Him alone belongs salvation. The Exodus was a great display of this, but it was merely a shadow, a pointing to a greater redemption accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in His life, His sacrificial death, and His resurrection. So what changed for Asaph? His His circumstances didn't change. His trouble didn't go away, at least not in these moments. So what changed was his focus. What changed was his gaze. It changed from self to God. After verse 12, Asaph disappears from view. You had a whole lot of I, me, and my. Now it's all the Lord, God, and and all looking toward Him. There are no more personal pronouns after this. His thinking changed from self and circumstances to God's character and work. Though his life was troubled, he was settled upon the Lord. But while this is Asaph's change, it's also our change as well. This is our turning point. When we're trying to deal with trouble, when we're trying to understand the dark valleys that we're going through, when we're trying to endure in those moments, this is our change. So when brought low and despairing because of a day of trouble, we must turn from self, our own feelings, our own limited understanding, and set our gaze upon God, His works, and His wondrous deeds and promises graciously graciously, revealed to us in His Word. And that's the key there. We don't go out and ponder under a tree. God, speak to me. Help me to know what you're like, what you've done, what you're going to do. He has graciously revealed that to us in His Word. And we have so much to lean upon to know Him, who He is and what He's done, and to rest in His wisdom and goodness, even in times of trouble. We too, like Asaph, can look back at His wondrous deeds in the Exodus in redeeming His people there. But unlike Asaph... Because he didn't have this yet. We can look to that greater redemption. Not from slavery in Egypt, but from bondage to sin, slave, and the fear of death. We can look back in God's Word and see the faithfulness of God to send forth His Son, Jesus Christ, on behalf of us, on behalf of sinners who took on humanity Himself, that He could live the life that we should have lived in perfect obedience to the Father, who died a sacrificial death bearing the weight of sin that we deserve. And that He would be resurrected, that we could have new life in Him, be reconciled to God, and be set free from our bondage to sin, shame, and death through faith in Him. So yes, we have all the examples that Asaph have, more even through the Old Testament, but even more so now because Christ has come. So when troubled, we can remember the God who is holy and does all things well. When troubled, we can meditate upon the God who is great and able to deliver or to carry you through. And when troubled, you can rest in the Lord Jesus who redeemed you by His righteous life, death, and resurrection. He is your great hope in the midst of trouble. And we are to look to the Lord. 
As we come to the last stanza, we see here the fourth stanza. We see Asaph's comfort in verses 16 through 20. It says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So in this last section, we see his comfort. In grand poetic style, Asaph describes the passing of God's people through the Red Sea, as we just, as we just heard. And what a picture of terror and chaos. You know, reading it there in Exodus, you don't quite get the gravity of what Asaph is portraying here. But that would have been a, a, a I mean, terrifying moment. You know, how does he describe it? He, 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 it seems all of nature's unbridled. It seems like everything's coming apart in those moments. Lightning's lighting up the sky. Storms are happening. Thunder is happening all around. Um, it's crashing, all the noise, all, all the things that would have been before them as they see this sea that there's the only way of escape behind them is Pharaoh's army ready to slaughter them. This is the trouble that faced God's people in Exodus. It would have been horrific. Yet in the middle of it, we find God. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the terror, in the midst of all the trouble that they were facing, in the middle of it all, we find God. Asaph says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. And though they, not, they, oh, and though they did not see them in their midst, the people knew God was there. As the walls of water stood upright, as they walked through on dry ground, as Asaph says here, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He was there with them. Herein lies Asaph's comfort in the day of trouble. God is there with him. Asaph's not content or merely comforted only by knowing or thinking about God. He's not just reciting doctrinal statements. Those are good, foundational but until they go into the heart, until they are something that you're resting upon, not just reciting in the mind, but resting upon daily, then they're not comforting. It's great to know those things, but to rest on those things, hope in those things, believe those things, love those things, love the one who they're, they're about. So he's not comforted in just knowing about God, but that this God who is holy, great, and redeems is with him in the midst of the trouble. With a great picture of chaos all around, we find God's way, not on the calm shore where the people are not. He's not just in heaven looking down on the trouble that the people are going through, but His way is in the sea with the people. His way is in the chaos. It is in the trouble faced by Asaph, and it is there that Asaph saw God's great care for him. Not that God removed his trouble or the chaos from Israel. We know that didn't happen in the Exodus, but that he was there in the midst with them all. Not only was he with them, he was leading them. He's not just dealing with the trouble the same time they're dealing with the trouble, kind of walking step and step with Israel, step and step with, with Asaph or step and step with us, trying to figure out things as they go on. He was leading them to a greater place that he had in store, in, in store for them. He knew the way. And he led them through that um, safely. This was, that, this was the way he had chosen for them to show his great power, wisdom, and goodness. 
Asaph's comfort is that God was with him in his trouble and that God would lead him through his trouble. But as we've said before, this is our great comfort as well. When we face the day, the week, the month, or even years of trouble, our holy, great Redeemer God is with us. He will never leave or forsake us as He promised. He is there in the chaotic sea of life that tosses us to and fro. Wherever you are at, He is there. In the times of peace, in the times of trouble, He is there. And not only is He there, He's also graciously leading and wisely leading you into the sea and out again, clinging ever closer to Him. Spurgeon once said regarding life's trials, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. So hear this, whatever troubles may come, though we may not know the reason, we can trust the Father's hand in every trial and season. He leads you through the waters as He walks beside to carry His sons and daughters to the other side. His wisdom is an anchor to hearts that do despair. His might a sure foundation of His loving care. Though the deeps of life may tremble, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God and Savior is with you all the way. We cannot leave the psalm without seeing more of Jesus here. Seeing God's way in the sea reminded of Christ who led His disciples out into the sea into a storm that arose and battered the boat and they were greatly afraid. There in their great fear, the Lord was with them. They cried out to Jesus who was with them and with a word, He stilled the storms. We hear in in Psalm 93 verse 4, Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Even more than this, we see Jesus, the Son of God, entering our trouble by becoming like us in humanity, taking on humanity, living amongst us. In His earthly life, He experienced all the pains and temptations of our life yet was without sin, so that He could be our sympathetic high priest, so that He could sympathize with us, that He could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So Christ further experienced our troubles by taking those sins on Himself, dying on a cross, bearing the wrath of God for our sins, that we could be right with God. And it was there that the Father was with the Son through the most tumultuous of seas, the cross of His own wrath for our sin. And thus Jesus even tasted death for us. It was there that the Father did not see His Holy One um, or let His Holy One see corruption, but was faithful to raise Him up, bringing us the greatest good out of the greatest trouble, that can, and He continues to do so to this day. He is our great hope and comfort now and forevermore. So just as we see in Psalm 7-7 that God led His people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron, we think of a greater shepherd who laid down His life for His sheep that leads them to greener pastures, to greater places that we, can, that we can even imagine. And if we rest in Him, He does that even in our troubles. So in times of trouble, do you doubt the love of God for you? Look to Jesus, the supreme and eternal expression of God's steadfast love for you from which you cannot be separated. In times of trouble, do you question God's goodness toward you? Look to Jesus who, by the Father's good hand and plan, was sacrificed for you for your sin that you would enjoy His goodness forever. And in times of trouble, do you forget God's faithfulness? Look to Jesus in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. All the spiritual blessings of God are yours in Christ. So as your day of trouble comes, 
or is now here, look to the Lord who is with you, who is leading you, and who never changes. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your grace, you meet us. In your grace, you come beside us, even in the midst of our troubles. Lord, we are thankful that your word and you are honest with us about life in a world broken by sin. That we don't have to ignore or deny the realities of the dark 